Thank you, Lynn, for that wonderful reminder of uh, the power of the blood of Christ to forgive us. Isn't that good to know? <laughs> Our sins are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Today we have the privilege of opening God's Word to Acts chapter 3. And as we read together, this passage pastor will be preaching from this morning, we also realize that the church is washed by the water of the Word. And so as we read God's word, there is a purifying effect to us. So I'll read, you follow along in Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those carrying, entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at them, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold. And what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people uttered a utterly astounded, ran together to them to the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you state, stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied. And in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man, this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled, repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. May God bless the reading of his word. Challenging chapters in the Bible. And by that, I mean not just the difficult chapters, hard to understand chapters. What I mean by that is cha chapters that bring us great challenge to both embrace them and to live them out. I asked uh, weeks ago 
for our church family, uh, invited you to um, submit your challenging chapters, those chapters that have spoken to your heart, maybe even just recently, or even lifelong, perhaps even your favorite chapter of the Bible. And I received a lot of suggestions that we would use in our curriculum, studying through God's Word in this series of messages. And I welcomed that. I'm glad to see not only your interest, but see that these particular chapters have been of interest and challenge to you. And I figure that if they've been a challenge to one of you, there'll probably be a good challenge to all of us, not just that one individual. And so we give ourselves this morning to look at this particular chapter, Acts chapter 3, and find its challenge for us. And then for us as a whole church family, I will hasten to say that some of you um, took advantage of the situation, writing down more than one chapter, Uh, but I tried to overlook the sinfulness of that, and um, I will try to um, cover all of the chapters (laughs) that were recommended over this course of time, and if you still have not yet gotten your recommended chapter in... Use that card that's right there in front of you, fill that out, and um, uh, we'll do our best to get to it over the course of time here. Looking forward to that. We are uh, studying as we do every Sunday morning. When we open our Bibles and study God's Word, we're learning and living God's Word. It's not good enough to just learn it. We're learning it to live it, right? That's even part of what we put on the banners around the room. Learning God's Word to live godly lives. Learning and living God's holy Word. And so, this is what has captured our attention. We are people of the book. We're not merely people of the books in the library, wonderful as they are. You ought to be a a reader. You ought to be a wide reader, You ought to be a reader of many different disciplines. That's a wonderful thing. Even reading the newspaper. I mean, it's incumbent upon Christians to be up on current events and current affairs. And it's, it's our privilege to be knowledgeable about many things. But this book of all books draws our attention because this book is different than every other one. This one is inspired of the Holy Spirit literally giving us the revelation of God, which in essence is a revelation, a revealing of Himself, as well as revealing His will and His way for His people. So we give special attention to this book like no other book, these chapters like no other chapters of any other book. Now let me hasten to say, uh, on this matter that uh, we recognize and we remember that the chapter divisions in our Bibles are not inspired of the Holy Spirit. Originally written, the Bible, as Paul wrote it or as Moses wrote it, did not have chapter divisions. It did not have verse divisions. Those have simply been inserted for us for our easy reference The system of chapters used today is usually accredited to Stephen Langton, who served as Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1200s, and their first use within the copies of the Latin Vulgate version. A 14th century rabbi, Solomon ben Ishmael, seems to have 
adapted Langdon's chapter divisions for use in what was the Hebrew Bible, as it then came to us, complementing the existing verse divisions in the Masoretic text. New Testament verse divisions seem to have been introduced by Robert Estine in the 1550s. So the chapter divisions that we recognize today came to us in about the 1200s. The verse divisions that we employ today still came to us in about the 1500s. So you understand that these are useful tools, but not the way the Bible was originally written. When Paul wrote a letter to the believers in Ephesus or in Colossae, it was a letter and in letter form not in chapter and verse, but it is especially helpful for us to be able to say, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, and it helps us to be able to get to that place in any one writing of the Bible. And so we find chapter divisions to be helpful, though not inspired, and sometimes the chapter divisions, you might even say, we might as well say this at the beginning of this kind of study of challenging chapters, sometimes the chapter divisions get in the way in the flow of the text of what's happening, you can even find that, eh, that makes me think it's come to the end of a, of a thought, but really the thought continues into the next chapter. So don't let the chapter and verse divisions tie you down. Let them be just what they are, a simple handle by which we get to certain places. And then once those chapter and verse divisions were given to us, uh, each new translation has pretty much stayed with it because after all you wouldn't want to call John 3.16 John 2.8. I mean you know just because somebody thought it'd be a little better we've just stuck with that system that we got back in the 1200s and 1500s just because you know you you don't want to mess with people's minds too badly. So that said about chapter and verse divisions useful as they are we understand their place. Okay So we today have the understanding of reading God's Word and putting it into practice in our lives. A survey was done just recently in America among people who call themselves Christians, and they were asked, how often do you read the Bible? This is a recent survey, Pew Research Survey, and what they found, how often do you read the Bible? These were church people, people who answered the question, calling themselves people who go to church. 32% say they read the Bible every day. I should add to that, only 32% of the people responding to this survey said that they read their Bible every day. No wonder you don't have a a chapter that challenges you if you haven't read the Bible very much to find one that's a special challenge to you, right? 12% said that they read the Bible once a week. And 12% said they never read the Bible. So where are you in the percentages? Are you an everyday Bible reader, a a once-a-week Bible reader, or a pretty much never Bible reader? (laughs) Just pick your Bible up to come to church, or a lot of churches across America don't even pick your Bible up to go to there. We want to be people of the book. Now, this is just an interesting thing. Since I was reading that survey... Uh, You might find this interesting. They also did a survey of 50,000 sermons preached in the United States of America. 50,000 sermons were surveyed. Their actual word content and word and analysis done and all of those kinds of things. And they did a number of different kinds of uh, studies on that. And um, 
I found it interesting that the average length of a sermon in an evangelical church across America, and we are one of those evangelical churches, the average length of a sermon was 39 minutes. We're pretty right on there, pretty right on. I mean, I may get a minute or two over that from time to time, but we're pretty much right there in the middle of evangelical churches across America, 50,000 sermons surveyed, 39 minutes was the average. Now, uh, a, a, a category that this Pew Research Center used was Protestant black, historic black Protestant churches. That was a category used. Historic black Protestant churches have an average length of sermons of 54 minutes. I think I'm joining a different church. 54 minutes. Oh, that's good. Now, the average Catholic sermon was 14 minutes. Okay, so anyway, um, thought you'd be interested. We're in Acts chapter 3 today. We've selected this particular passage for our attention. It's an intriguing incident, isn't it? An intriguing incident. In other words, it's amazing to us, this particular incident. The first thing we notice here is that Peter and John were going into the temple area to pray. Intriguing incident. Number one, Peter and John going into the temple area, and their purpose was to pray. It says, now Peter and John were going into the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. Here, Peter and John were doing what they would normally do, going to the temple, going to pray at the temple, and it happened to be at the three o'clock hour of prayer. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate. So they were here in what is otherwise called Solomon's portico. So just as a just to kind of set your mind, here's a model, a picture of a model of what Solomon's portico or porch. It was a multi-columned general assembly area in the Jewish temple during the time of Christ and the time just after here at the beginning of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. And so there in that general area of the temple, they encounter a lame man who was asking for help. Apparently that was his regular practice since he was lame from birth. People would bring him there And there he would beg for alms. He would seek out money. He was at the beautiful gate at the particular part of the temple. If you envision a model of the Jewish temple of that day, it had many gates going in at a variety of places. One particular one was known as the beautiful gate. As you can imagine, more ornate and all of those kind of things. And it was at this central place that this man was assisted to come to the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering into the temple. And then, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And they, he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But rather than money, rather than giving him alms, money, Peter Peter healed him 
in the name of Jesus. And of course, the thing that happened after that was, he went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went, well, you know the song, right? Walking and leaping and praising God. And of course, that stirred up uh, the interest of everybody around in Solomon's portico in the temple. So you can just envision there among the colonnades, the columned parts of the temple there, the big crowd saw this man who later on in the story we're told that he's 40 years old. He's been lame from birth, so probably for 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, for a very long time, People have been bringing him here. Everybody generally in that area probably recognized this guy. And now he's walking and leaping and praising God. And a big crowd wants to gather around and know what in the world just happened. Well, Peter took advantage of that. It says, and all of the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And here we have his sermon, his public address to the people who were gathering around who had been Um, interested because of this miraculous event. And he said, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one And ask for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Now, everybody's gathered around watching this guy hooping and hollering. And Peter takes the opportunity. Remember, the the day of Pentecost just happened. 3,000 souls were saved. Now they've come back to pray. And he's gathered another crowd and is giving them this sermon and really lays it on thick. (laughs) And when he does, guess what happens? Not everybody's happy to be told that they killed the author of life. They arrest him. Look at chapter 4. And when they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. We're not at all happy about what you're doing, Peter. And when they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So Peter and John get arrested for preaching what they preached, and yet dramatic results came from that pointed preaching of God's word. They were arrested 
And uh, a whole, going into chapter 4, that's another, uh, it's helpful to have a chapter division of chapter 4 because it's a long passage here, but it's the same story that spills over into the next chapter here after preaching about this man who was resur- who's made to walk from his lame condition. Now they're thrown into prison. And ultimately, let me give you the rest of the story as it comes down. Oh, pick it up in verse 17. But in order that it, in chapter 4, verse 17, in order that it may be spend no more time among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them, this is Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They had for 40 years seen this man laying at the beautiful gate. Peter comes up and in the name of Jesus heals this man. Well, it causes a stir. He preaches that they're all guilty of killing the author of life. So he gets arrested, thrown into jail, and he says, don't you dare preach that message anymore. We don't like it. We want you to be nice. That's all we want you to do when you're talking in the Jewish temple. And Peter says, listen, you you can have what you want. I just have to give you what God says. And said, "I'll, I'll do what God tells me to do, not what you tell me to do. So that's the end of that whole story. It comes to the refusal to obey that warning because we ought to obey God rather than what? Man. So here's the important instruction we need to get for today. 2020, Sandusky, Ohio, our community, our town, what do we need to know? Well, the first thing is this. Prayer is essential to God's people. Peter and John were going into the temple to do what? They were going to pray. They were gathering with God's people to pray. In other words, it wasn't just enough that they were going to pray privately. It was important to gather with others to pray. If you don't do that, you are sinning. Okay, I had to say it. But that's my job, sorry. No, not sorry. (laughs) Right Prayer has always been important to God's people, Old Testament, New Testament. Old times, this time, right now, today. Alistair Begg, who pastors a church just over in Cleveland, tweeted on his Twitter account Friday this quote, The devil recognizes that when we go to God in prayer, we become supernaturally empowered. Therefore, the only thing he is afraid of is that we would ever get serious about going in prayer. It's still important today, folks. Pete and I met this morning, knelt right down here at the front of this pew before you got here and prayed. That's not because we're leading the service today, but because it's important to pray. It's because... Every time we can possibly get together as believers in Christ, that's important. You neglect that to the peril of the church. 
So God is the one who ordained prayer and that he would answer prayer. So we are to be people of prayer to him, like Peter and John. They were men of prayer, and we must be. If we expect God to do anything today, it isn't merely in the other things. It is in that essential discipline of prayer as a church family. Secondly, crowds were important, but so are the individual people in the crowd. When the day of Pentecost came, the Bible is careful to tell us 3,000 people were saved. So you know what that tells us? Crowds are important. You know, the masses of people, that's important. The Bible records for us several times in the Bible about big numbers of people. And Peter preached the sermon where thousands of people were saved, right? The beginning of the church, just a couple of chapters back, you know, in the book of Acts. So the church is just beginning. So Peter is this big guy on this big momentum wave of action of what the Lord is doing. So he's only interested in the masses of people, right? No. We turn the chapter of the book of Acts, we come to Acts chapter 3, and Peter's paying attention to the one guy. In fact, the one disenfranchised guy, the one disabled guy, the one who doesn't matter to anybody else hardly in the assembly. That tells us something, doesn't it? That the individual matters. Even the individual that doesn't seem to matter matters. (laughs) And we can never lose sight of that. One way to say it is this. Here is a man with no name that meets the one whose name is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't even get this man's name. All we know is his malady. All we know is what's wrong with him. But the story hinges on the fact that he meets the one who can meet him at his point of need because somebody cares enough to stop and pay attention to the man in need, the individual in need. Number three, prayer is essential to God's people. Crowds are important to, just like the individual. And number three, people trump plans. They had their plans. Peter and John had had an agenda. They had probably pulled out their smartphone, and Siri had prompted them, hey, it's the hour of prayer. Get on up there to the temple. Okay, check that off my agenda. I've got a plan to put in place today. And what we find out that in doing their schedule, in carrying out their plan, people trump the plan. There was this moment when you, you just had to put the plan aside and say, hey, God's doing something here that matters, that regardless of the plan, this is what should have our attention at the moment. Are you ever aware of that? I think there's something important there. Number four, miracles happen. What we read about here is this lame man walking and leaping and praising God. It didn't happen over the course of a year. He didn't take antibiotics. He didn't go to the physical therapist. He didn't go have surgery. 
That wasn't the issue. It was miraculously done immediately and completely. This was not what you see on television with the faith healers blowing everybody down in the auditorium and people throwing their crutches away and then picking them up to get back on the bus to go back home. That's not what we see here. Here was a man who was immediately and completely healed because miracles happen, because Jesus is the Son of God, Son of Man, fully human, fully man, and in the name of Jesus, Peter healed this man so that Jesus would get the praise because that's exactly what he says in his comments to the crowd. Do you think that by our power or by our piety we did this? This has nothing to do with me. Tell that to the evangelist on television. This has nothing to do with me. This is the miracle working power of the Lord Jesus Christ because of who he is. Jesus can today do any miracle he wants to do. He just doesn't need you to do it. And he doesn't need you to monetize it either. Following Jesus is often tough. These guys are on a roll. They had 3,000 people at the day of Pentecost. Now the text tells us after this incident... 5,000 people are now the followers of Jesus. Besides the, uh, about 5,000, the number of men came to 5,000. Who knows about the women and children there? It's is becoming big time very quick. And yet, they're thrown into jail. And what you're going to know about Peter and John is the rest of their life is not easy. Following Jesus may have had its moments of grandeur, but it was filled with persecution and hard. Be aware of that because that is the reality. Followers of Jesus Christ have hardly ever had it as easy as believers in the United States in the last couple hundred years. We're an anomaly. Just look around the world. We are sustained by the Holy Spirit. I'm reading in chapter 4, verse 8, and it says there, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God then turned right around and raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You said he was worthless, but God, in essence, is saying he's the foundation for it all. And saying that, he said it, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a key touchstone issue for the church of Jesus Christ. Today, we are sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we rejoice when God gives big results. Big results. 5,000 men. Besides that, the women and children. We rejoice when God gives big results. 
and when he gives small results too. The small result was that lame man, the, 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 the guy who hardly anybody paid attention to or cared about. That's a small result. But look at the big result he also brought as a result of the bold preaching that came, using him as an example. We rejoice how God does both big and seemingly small things. So a beggar begs the question this morning for us from this chapter. What does our community need from us? As the beggar sat there in Jerusalem in that day, what was he asking for? What did he need? What did the community need from the people of God? He thought he needed silver and gold. Is that what he really needed? That's what he was asking for. His hand was out. And Peter said to him, what? Silver and gold I don't have. If that's what you're looking for, that's not the issue. Silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. (laughs) What does our community need from us today? Not merely our money. Not merely that. That may solve a temporary problem, but we've got our eyes on a more eternal answer to our community's trouble. What does our community need? From this passage, I think what we learn is our community needs personal compassion and care. That's what Peter showed the man. When seemingly others were walking by a man who probably was there almost daily for year after year after year, enough so that everybody in the temple regularly who came knew who this guy was, What Peter and John demonstrated for us that I think is key is our need for personal compassion and care to those in our sphere of influence. How can we demonstrate the compassion of Christ, the love of Christ to those around us? It may involve money, but that's such a temporal thing that it's hardly the issue. Hardly the issue. It's a lot harder to give of your time and your love than it is to give of your money, isn't it? A clear introduction to the living God. That's what our community needs. When Peter said, rise up and walk, and the crowd started gathering around, what did he say to the crowd? Oh, don't you think that these these columns up here, somebody needs to, look how they're crumbling up here. Somebody needs to get some scaffolding up to the top of that. Don't you think it'd look better if it was painted, guys? Come on. Is that what Peter's message was? No, it wasn't buildings and grounds. (laughs) It, 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 it It wasn't, don't you think... That if we had air conditioning, you know, we'd all, we'd all just get along better around here if we just had air conditioning in the temple here. Yeah. Was that the issue? <laughs> he said, let me introduce you to uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers who glorified his servant Jesus. That's what our community needs to know. That's who they need to come to know. A clear introduction to the living God. And our community needs bold denunciation of sin in the community. 
What did Peter do? He pointed his bony finger in their faces and said, You killed the author of life. You are guilty. You will stand before God and give answer to that. You. That doesn't make you very popular in the United States of America in our feel-good, convenient Christianity. You won't hear that in many pulpits across America. Hardly anybody's going to mimic the message and sermons of Peter. Hardly anybody. Why? Because we're more interested in filling the pews than we are in speaking the word. That's why. We'd rather have everybody feel good going out than to respond to God. A sincere call for repentance from sin. When he said, you killed the author of life, he said, now, verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And they won't be blotted out till you do that. Repent therefore. When's the last time you heard the word repent in common conversation around the community? We don't even use the word much less have a concept for where that fits in the category of our life. Repent, and your sins will be blotted out. If you were to do a survey of 50,000 sermons across America and ask for the word repent to show up, it doesn't show up very much in 50,000 sermons. We've completely abandoned that because it's not convenient. It doesn't make people feel good. But there it is. And if you're studying a chapter of the Bible, you have to come into grips with the fact that that's what the Bible says. <laughs> I don't get to pick and choose just any little verse I want and, and cherry pick, oh, I think I'll take all the verses that tell me how much God loves me. If I take the whole context of the Bible, I've got to see exactly what it says, don't I? What we also know is that our community needs to hear an insistence that Jesus is the only Savior. The only Savior. Because in chapter 4, the summary of it all, filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter goes on to say all this, and he comes down to say, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can't be saved by any other way. This is a narrow way. This is a narrow-minded way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way under the Father but by me. That's exclusive. That's narrow intentionally. What is very common in all of the religious atmosphere of the United States of America in 2020 is the common kind of mentality that says, we just go along to get along. All roads lead to God. You choose your path. I'll choose my path. We'll all meet there when we get there. But that's just not right. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved but the Lord Jesus Christ. If we say what the Bible says, you got to say that, because that's what it says. You cannot be saved by your own good works. You cannot be saved by some other belief. You must only be saved in, by 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what would our next steps be in light of all of that? If you are already a follower of Christ, if you are already saved, you've already been born again, repented of your sin and received Christ as Savior, look for opportunities to show the love and compassion of Christ. Look for opportunities. You've got your plan for the day. You've got your agenda. Of course you do. In the midst of it, look for ways to show the love and compassion of Christ. Present the gospel message and ask for a response. In that survey that I talked about, the question is asked, in the past six months, what, are the, what is the number of times you have shared the gospel with someone? In the past six months, Pew Research, legitimate research all across America, thousands of people responding. The answer for 55% of the people to that question was never, not once. 55. In other words, the majority of people who say they go to church, identify themselves as Christians, would have to say in the last six months, I've not ever, not one time, presented the gospel to anyone. Well, what result can we expect then? 24% said once. So are you the 55% or the 24%? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? Be prepared for the results of presenting the gospel, though, because there may be good results and there may be what we consider bad results. Persecution, hardship, ostracized, marginalized, misunderstood, accused of being a hater. Uh, be prepared for the results of being a representative of that narrow way. Remember, we plant the seed, he brings the harvest. We're not out there manipulating anybody or tricking anybody. We plant the seed, he brings the harvest. If you are ready to become a follower of Christ today, right this moment, and you've never been saved, then please repent of your sin and receive Jesus as your Savior today. Then enter the joy of having eternal life and living for the one who saved you. Michael Bloomberg has recently entered the Democratic race for president in 2020 here. He's all over the news. It brings to my mind uh, a news article that I'm reading from here from just a a ways back where uh, Michael Bloomberg is quoted in this news article. Um, He was taking credit as the former mayor of New York City for his work for more gun control, along with his anti-smoking and healthy eating campaigns. And uh, that's, uh, uh, here's what he says. His exact words made in context of discussing his smoking cessation and anti-obesity pushes as the mayor that he once was, as well as his concerted crackdown on private gun ownership uh, to the New York Times. I'm quoting his words. I'm telling you, if there is a God, Michael Bloomberg said, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Oh, yeah? Now, I'll never be as rich as Michael Bloomberg. I'll never be as smart as Michael Bloomberg. 
I'll never be as powerful or influential or well-known or all the rest. But Mr. Bloomberg has it wrong about how to get to heaven. There's one way and only one way. What Jesus did for us on the cross, I can't earn it, he can't earn it, you can't earn it by being good. Even as good as that is, even as good as we might possibly be, we can't be good enough. Jesus is the only Savior, and the reason he can save us is because he paid for our sin debt on the cross and offers to forgive you of your sin if you'll trust him to do so. Ask him to do so. Trust him to do so. He will save those who repent of their sin and receive him. And that's good news. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer and contemplate our response to him today. Not merely to Peter and John, but to the Lord Jesus today. What is our response to him today? I surrender all? Is that what we would say? Uh, Lord, you can have all of me. You saved me. I surrender all to you. I think that's an appropriate response, isn't it? Over and over and over. This week, last week, next week, (laughs) over and over. That's appropriate. Let's encourage that response among us, even as we sing here in just a moment. But if if you've never been saved, wouldn't you understand today that Jesus wants to save you, loves you, wants to forgive you of your sin, Call upon him to do so. Repent of your sin and ask him to save you. And then if you've been saved, would you live out the compassion of Christ, the love of Christ, the attention to people, people around you? But give them the message that's pointed and straight and true. Don't water it down. Don't compromise it. Because then you distort it. Give them the true gospel. Call them to respond to Jesus. Lord, help us toward that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, please.
Five o'clock tonight, two different choices, great ways to grow in grace and knowledge of God's Word. Take advantage of that if you would, and let's be faithful to the Lord this week. We have Sunday School next, Bible studies for every age group. Take advantage of those opportunities. Thank you, Lord, for your Word. May we submit to the truth of it and joy in the grace found at the foot of the cross. In Christ's name we pray, amen.